can you get access to that's low cost, no cost, building a, um, you know, a minimal viable product or trying to reduce expenses as, as you grow in your business. And the way I like to do it is for those who are currently operating business, my favorite part of being resourceful is looking at the balance sheets. Uh, I like to look at a balance sheet and identify what are the, um, the liabilities how can we monetize those liabilities? That's my favorite type of resourcefulness and entrepreneurship for business growth, because you've already have stuff you're paying for, but how can we turn it into a profit? Welcome to Forward with NACI, inspiring entrepreneurial action, a podcast that shares the stories of everyday entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial leaders, and the communities that support us. We hope that this diverse collection of stories brings you inspiration, inspires you to take action, and ignites entrepreneurship in your community as we make our way forward together. Welcome to this episode of Forward with NACI. It's 2024, and we're very excited to begin a brand new year of podcasts celebrating everyday entrepreneurs, leaders from all walks of life that give inspiration and give practical knowledge that can help you, whether you uh, aspire to start a business or just uh, aspire to improve your life. I'm Rebecca Corbin, the host of Forward with NACI, and I'm also the president and CEO of the National Association for Community College Entrepreneurship. And it is my pleasure to welcome today's guest, our first guest of 2024, Dr. Michael Barbera. Um, he has a really interesting background. And um, so I'll be calling him Michael, but he is has some, some great, not only educational uh, experiences, but really a rich career in business. So Michael, welcome to our first episode. I'm really happy that you're here. And why don't we kick it off by you introducing yourself to our audience, maybe take us back a little in time, tell us where you are and some of the things that have inspired you to do the work you're doing today. I appreciate the uh, the invite and, of course, Happy New Year. I think today is probably the last day we can so socially acceptable to say Happy New Year. So Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year, Rebecca. Um, Michael Barbera, obviously. I am a lifelong entrepreneur with a psychology hobby. So I'll start sort of like present day and then work backwards a little bit or skip backwards. I'm currently the chief behavioral officer at Clipsuation Labs, which is a full service marketing agency with a niche in consumer behavior. And so my former field of study in academia is in behavioral economics, behavioral finance, of course, psychology or social science fields. But then going back you know, way back to when I was uh, you know, preteen, I started my first business at the age of 13 years old and uh, had an exit. Luckily, he was fortunate at the age of 17, started many businesses thereafter. Most were failures, learned from those failures to you know, contribute to further successes. So I'm still an entrepreneur to this day with a psychology hobby, and I uh, always try to make uh, the biggest impact wherever I um, am included. I love that. And I, you know, it just really comes through that you're always kind of reinventing yourself and, you know, on this uh, network and in the work that we do at NACI, we talk a lot about the framework of effectuation that was started by Dr. Sarah Sarasvathy out of the Darden School. And she speaks a lot about burden hand assets. And so why don't we go back a little bit further in time? Cause now you have our curiosity about this business that you started when you were 13. So tell us uh, what the business was was and how you kind of grew it to exit out when you were 17. All right. So uh, at 13 years of age, I was a drummer in a rock band. And when you're 13 and you're in a band, you have this perception that your entire life's going to be as a rock star on tour. I have long hair. Now, this is COVID hair. I've had short hair my entire life. So um, obviously, I'm not a rock star and I didn't go on tour. But as a, as a drummer in a band at 13 years of age, 
uh, all the other people in the band were about 17 or 18 years of age. And we would have this large Halloween party in our guitarist's backyard. Now, this is in New York City. So if you have a backyard, that's kind of awesome, right? That's, that's some real estate. And this one year, the guitarist's parents were selling the homes. We couldn't use the, uh, the backyard. And I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be another way to still put on this concert. And pre-internet day, they get on the telephone and I start calling all these venues throughout New York City from the large Roseland Ballroom to you know the small Knights of Columbus and the VFWs. I find this venue out in Staten Island, New York called The Caves. It's a really cool venue. It's a former brewery. It's got you know caves in the bedrock, uh, two stages, five bars. Now at 13 years of age, I look like I was 22. So if I walked in this venue, no one would question my validity being there as long as I didn't drink any alcohol and of course abuse the privilege. I introduced myself to the owner, operator, or manager of the club and I explained what I wanted to do. I wanted to rent this facility and then, you know, put on this, you know, all day concerts. He says, let's do it. And the only thing I knew at 13 about, you know, business was, you know, revenue minus expenses equals profit. I didn't say it as fancy when I was 13, but pretty much don't spend more than you make. How hard could it be, right? Every entrepreneur's famous words. And so, they put on this event, all day concert, 22 bands, uh, two stages, and made a profit. And the owner or manager of the club said, let's do it again, and let's do it again, and let's do it again, and it became a business. Uh, it became Jam Productions. It was a concert promotion agency that kind of morphed into uh, a booking agency for artists throughout the greater tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, and of course, upstate New York as, uh, as well. Now, the owner of the club was A.J. Perro. A.J. was the drummer for Twisted Sister, became sort of my unofficial mentor in business. Uh, we didn't sit down and have conversations about what I should and should not do, but I learned a lot from observing what he did and, of course, what he did not do. Now, that business was acquired by a company called Catalyst Promotions. They're still in business today out of Tampa, Florida. But during that entrepreneurial journey as a teenager and growing uh, this business, I would like kind of pause and stop and watch how people would engage with merchandise boots from the, from the bands or the bars. And I would be kind of curious of how people would make decisions. And at this time, I didn't know there's a field of study of behavioral economics or social sciences for that kind of stuff. And then it just kind of piqued my interest. But that was kind of the foundation for how I got to where I am today. That is such an interesting story. And you may not know this about NACI, but we wrapped up our uh, last annual conference in Nashville, Tennessee. So we were looking at entrepreneurship across the music industry because we were in Music City. And in 2024, this year in mid-October, we're going to be up in Minneapolis, which is the home of Prince, as you know, and Paisley Park. So I'm going to have to circle back to you on your story because I think you'd fit in very well with some of the things that we have planned. Um, and what a great uh, success. So it sounds like entrepreneurship got in your blood. You sort of tapped into your curiosity with what makes people tick and what makes people do the things that they do. And as I was thinking about sort of resources and, and people developing habits, which, you know, consumerism to me is a habit, you know, it's, it's where you like to shop, it's the things that you buy and so on. But let's jump fast forward into your TED Talk. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and maybe let people know where they can find it if they want to hear more about it. That's a great question. So I might, I might struggle here for a moment. It's been so long since I've I've been involved in gender neutral uh, restroom research, but let me see how the best I can do. All right. So I, I recall that 
I was in Chicago and I was walking to a, to a restroom and I walked past the first door. It was a female sign woman sign on the, on the door. You know, I walked past like I normally would. And then I come across the male restroom and the male restroom said male and gender neutral. I was like, Hmm. I was like, okay, it's male slash in the neutral, but the females had their own restroom. It doesn't bother me, no harm, no foul, but I was curious, like, why do we have to share? Why can't everyone share? So it kind of piqued my curiosity of why certain restrooms would be shared and some not, and then the decision-making behind why people would accept or be willing to accept gender-neutral restrooms. And so just really kind of fast-forwarding, what we found was is that if the presentation of the, say, the placard or the sign on the door is more fun or, you know, aesthetically pleasing, it doesn't really throw gender into, say, the overt conversation, then people are more likely to, to accept it. Um, we published this research a couple of times in some journals, and uh, we made some impacts to some universities and some businesses throughout the country, and some, some in Europe as well. If anybody wants to watch those TED Talks, there's two. Uh, they can be found at TED.com. And uh, I wouldn't know the extension, but you, all you have to do is search my name into into TED.com. And I'm sure I'm, I don't have a common name. I'm sure it'll pop right up. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for that. I, I just think it's it's interesting when people, something sparks their curiosity of, of why. Because as you were talking and I watched a little bit of that TED Talk, I was thinking about airplanes. And, you know, it, it's interesting how crammed we are into space, but, you know, even in the situation of a restroom, you don't really have a choice. Like that's, that's what's available to you. But, um, you know, I think it opens the door to really thinking about how do we not only get consumers to purchase things and take action, which we all know, you know, historically, uh, like cigarettes, you know, uh, decades ago, that was, um, you know, one of those campaigns. And then, of course, then there was the campaign decades later to get people smoking is bad. Don't don't do that. But in terms of of your work and what you learned um, in your educational studies, have you come across things that really speak to habits? Um, the reason I'm even asking, I picked up this book. So a lot of times on um, our program, we talk about different books that we're reading and books that we like. And I don't know if you ever read um, this one, but it's The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. And what I like about your work is you sort of span both, you know, looking more kind of holistically. And um, so this book was written by Charles, um, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Doug, D-U-H-I-G-G. It was a New York Times bestseller. But one of the um, case examples in there was about um, getting people to brush their teeth uh, decades ago. And if they just you just laid out all the health benefits, people wouldn't always take action. But then they kind of came up with consumer jingles and it, it encouraged people. Oh, I want a you know, a bright, white, you know, tingly smile. And, and so that kind of encouraged people to take action. And the reason I bring that up is I'd love for you to give us a couple of examples um, in the work that you do on consumers and, and looking at research. What are some things that you've found in the course of your work that encourage uh, consumers to take action uh, in certain ways that might improve their lives, obviously improve the entrepreneurs that are offering these products? That's a great question. I'm going to try to answer that a few different ways. So let's let's go back to recent times. Let's talk pandemic. And we've all heard the phrase, the, the new normal. And, and, and as a psychologist, that kind of hurts me because it takes so much behavior change to really change a habit or create a new habit so that more than likely us, you know, me and you and many people in, in, around the world, we're going to regress back to our normal behaviors prior to the pandemic. So how do we get people to, you know, wash their hands? And we've heard probably the recommendation of, you know, sing happy birthday twice because it equates the time when you have to wash your hands. But then how do you memorize that? 
So a couple of researchers identified, well, if you were to hang some birthday decorations on your, say, bathroom mirror or by your kitchen sink and put a balloon next to it, it might trigger the thought to say or nudge you to say, sing happy birthday twice. So small things to just kind of like nudge towards behavior change, those those reminders or subtle notifications without being overt. Sometimes notifications can be too overt, like you mentioned, uh, trying to reduce you know, people who smoke, right? The uh, smoking habits. That's really challenging. By putting a label on a box saying this can cause, you know, health challenges or health concerns, probably not enough of a notification to give people the reminder that they should stop smoking. So do it in subtle ways. So some research that we um, conducted was about hurricane naming and hurricane research. So typically, you know, hurricane, the name, naming conventions are going to be Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Anthony, Hurricane Sarah, Hurricane Rebecca. And let's say Hurricane Rebecca was coming to Florida, and I'm, I'll make believe I'm a, I'm a Floridian for this conversation. I live in Florida. My neighbor's name is Rebecca. So when Hurricane Rebecca comes, I'm associating the hurricane with the, with the neighbor who I know I can trust, and I'm less likely to, to evacuate or leave. And, 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 and Wow, my- interesting. So therefore, what we found was in several studies, if you change the name from something that is more likable to something more, more terrifying, but realistic as well, um, people might be a little more likely to uh, to evacuate. So we tried some names from pop culture, uh, like um, Hurricane Cersei's building off of Game of Thrones. You see this is going back a few years. And mm-hmm. then we tried Hurricane Deathtron 3000. And of course, people were more likely to evacuate for those names. But also, the, you know, there's a dichotomy here is that let's say we started using a little more fearful messaging um, for naming conventions for name storms in, in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, after, you know, several name storms being Hurricane Deathtron 3000 and Hurricane Cersei, uh, it starts to the, the uniqueness of it starts to wear off and it becomes less impactful. So then you have to try to reinvent the wheel and try a new naming convention. So it, it may work for, you know, short-term impact, but long-term, it makes it a little more challenging. Yeah, those are great examples. I I never really even thought about that. Um, you know, and as we mentioned at the top of our conversation, we're talking about the new year and and gratitude. And I know that's one of the things uh, that, that can help. You know, people are experiencing anxiety, you know, coming through the holidays. Here we are, we're going into a new year and you know, post-pandemic, we're getting further enough away. But, you know, every time you turn on the news, it's like, okay, what's in store for 2024? Um, so maybe speak about a little bit about how can you get your mind uh, to, to really focus on sort of opportunity in front of you or your, you know, burden hand assets, your means, which is really what makes a lot of entrepreneurs successful. What would be things that could um, help a person, uh, you know, kind of get into that space and get away from maybe a more fearful space? I, I like this question a lot. I don't get asked this too much. So I want to answer it two ways. Number one, being, you know, being resourceful and number two, being, um, you know, objective planning. So let's start with objective planning. So I like smart goals being specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. If we say we're going to, you know, what, what's the January, right? Let's talk New Year's resolutions. Let's, let's put it to an easy context. Uh, the most common New Year's resolution is to, you know, lose weight. So let's say I'm going to lose 45 pounds in January. That's not realistic. It's probably not going to happen. So in order to lose 45 pounds, I'm probably going to go to the gym three times a day and change my diet. You know, for, and by day four, I'm already burnt out and I quit and back to, you know, my normal habits and I'm not probably going to lose any weight. But if we approach it to where it's very specific, well, um, I'm going to lose 12 pounds over the course of, say, 12 months, a pound a month that makes it a little more attainable. We have some benchmarks, so a pound a, pound a month and put a little time bound to it as well. 
Um, and then what do we have to do to, to then lose one pound per month? So we don't have to go to the gym every day, but we can go to the gym three times a week and then change our diet the second week. So small increments will help behavior change because we try to force it all at once. We're likely to burn out and not likely to succeed. So, so you know, small increments over time, small wins really make the difference. And then that really goes uh, co- coincides with um, – the other part of this is being resourceful. So what resources do we have available to us? And, and that can be in anything. So when it comes to weight loss, what do you have in your house? Or if it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, what can you get access to that's low cost, no cost, building a, um, you know, a minimal viable product or trying to reduce expenses as, as you're growing your business. And the way I like to do it is for those who are currently operating business, my favorite part of being resourceful is looking at the balance sheets. Uh, I like to look at a balance sheet and identify what are the um, the liabilities. How can we monetize those liabilities? That's my favorite type of resourcefulness and entrepreneurship or business growth because you've already have stuff you're paying for, but how can we turn it into a profit? Uh, I love that answer, and I, I think that also helps with I think to some extent reducing anxiety because even in my work um, at NACI, you know, we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit. But we operate very much like a business. Like we have certain revenue streams. We are not a government-supported organization. So we think about um, where does our revenue come from, and if we know that that stream is tightening up, then we've got to either reduce expenses or you know look uh, to expand maybe our product line. Maybe we get our store um, up and going and have new products. But it gives you that sense of you know of maybe not even control, but you you have that ability to really um, manage what might be either great opportunity or challenge. And that leads me to where I wanted to kind of end our conversation is the work that you're doing today with your company. I'd love for you to tell people a little bit about what you do, the kind of clients that you have, and maybe just an example of some impact that you've made that you're proud of. More than happy. So Clicksuasion Labs, a full-service marketing agency with a niche in consumer psychology. So at a, at a macro level or high level, there's three teams or three departments. There is a, uh, a research team which has you know, PhDs in uh, social science, behavioral economics, behavioral finance, and consumer behavior who research human decision-making. Uh, they'll provide that research to a client, to peer-reviewed journals, or give it to the marketing team. The marketing team will then apply that research to you know, uh, marketing campaigns for our clients, or then use it in their decision-making processes to make the biggest possible impact on the client's measurable objectives. And then we have an operations team, which gets does the most work and the least amount of credit, and they hold this whole mess together. Uh, but some of the work that we do, we work with, uh, well, sort of clients. We work with clients that are you know, international as well as um, uh, as local. So some of our clients include Microsoft, LendLease, uh, the Washington Post, as well as the yoga studio around the corner from the lab. We, it's very rare we would turn somebody away. We can always try to find a solution that works within everyone's budget. Um, and some of the work that we, we engage in is, is trying to bridge the gap between brands believing that consumers are making decisions based upon utilitarian thought processes and experiential thought processes. So at a really high level, you know, uh, most consumers, us, we're making decisions based upon experience more so than utility or transactions. And so if the consumer focuses on price, it's going to be a transaction. And then when it comes time to think about that transaction, we think we can get it for a better price somewhere else. However, if the consumer assumes it as an experience, then they're likely to continue to buy from that brand and have a positive engagement or interaction. For example, um, let's say, let's say over the previous 30 days, for those who are listening, I want you to self-reflect 
and uh, think about over the last 30 days, how many purchases have you made? How many credit card swipes? How many checks have you signed? How many dollars have you handed over? Um, how many of those in the last 30 days would, did you make that sustained life? Meaning that if you did not make that purchase, you would not be alive today to talk about it. For the significant majority of us, that purchase does not exist. For a select few, there might be maybe a healthcare bill or prescription medication. Yeah, mm -hmm. for the significant majority, it's not there. Now you can argue and say, well, Mike, I paid my mortgage. Okay, that, that, that's, that's important. We need shelter just for survival. However, we choose the three-bedroom house with the, with the fenced-in backyard based upon the experience it provides to us. So let's say there's 150 people listening to this right now. All 150, we can live in my kitchen. It's, it's, not, it's not that large of a kitchen. We can all live in this kitchen. Uh, we may not like it. We may get frustrated. We can get mad at each other, but we'll still survive. So we're choosing items or purchases in a category based upon the experience it provides to us. And the, the better the experience, the more likely the customer is going to return to that brand. I love that. That is really a wonderful, gives us a lot to think about. Um, and, and I, I, I was reminded of a lot of the books written by Seth Godin, who I'm sure you've listened to his talks and, and really that that's the differentiator. And when we think about, um, people that we serve, we try to think, how can we differentiate this experience um, from others? So I'm I'm anxious to talk more with you offline, but um, people might be interested in finding you. So how how would they find you? Uh, do you have a website for Clicksuasion or what would be the best way? Um, the, you can go to clicksuasion.com. I would say just email me, mike at clicksuasion.com. I have no problem sharing that email. And the worst thing I'll say is I have no idea and try to point you in the best possible direction. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us today. You gave us some great examples and a lot to think about as we uh, sail into the new year. So I, I wish you again, since it's our last day, we can do this. Uh, uh, happy New Year and Happy New Year to all of the people listening to us around the world. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you will continue to explore the many ways to define entrepreneurship with NACI as we celebrate opportunity, failing forward and success learning from one another along the way. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and follow at NACI on social media and learn more about us at NACI.com forward slash podcast. Stay tuned for a new episode each week. We look forward to making our way forward together with you. Have you heard the exciting news? NACI recently released a new publication titled The NACI Playbook, Volume 1, all about how entrepreneurial mindset sets the new standard for success in communities and colleges. The NACI Playbook digs into entrepreneurial mindset and how practicing leadership with this framework creates an agile culture with space to innovate, co-create, fail forward, and accelerate growth. Entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial leadership require us to lean in, anticipate and recognize trends, manage change, be resilient, take risks, reflect, and rest in the knowledge that anything is possible. Learn from our innovative, insightful, generous network who navigates both challenges and opportunities entrepreneurially 
as we share what we've learned and how you might apply their experience to your work. We hope you'll be as inspired as we were. Learn more at www.nacyplaybook.com.